millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. regret to inform you the rejection podcast last week we told the story of jennifer hudson hudson started her career on a disney cruise when she decided to try her hand at the title of american idol she was eliminated from idol twice before auditioning for the film adaptation of the hit broadway play dream girls for which she'd win an oscar a Golden Globe, a SAG Award, and a BAFTA, among others, changing her life forever. Now, it's said that Dream Girls is based heavily on the story of the Supremes, Dina as Diana Ross, Effie as Florence Ballard, the Dreamettes as the Primettes, but more on that later. And in researching that episode, we discovered it wasn't just Jennifer Hudson who had a rejection story— The Supremes had a fascinating journey of their own. So, join us, won't you, as we travel back in time to Detroit, Michigan, home of Hitsville, USA. The Brewster Douglas Housing Development once spanned 15 blocks along Detroit's southeast side. It was almost a city inside a city. The expansive cluster of four towers, two six-story apartment buildings, and 16 row houses huddled around green spaces, churches, banks, shops, and parking lots. Built in the mid-30s, it was one of the first of its kind in the U.S. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt would break ground on the project, marking the future of America's federally funded black housing. And soon, it's said Brewster Douglas became Detroit's nucleus of African-American culture. At a time when racial tensions were high and the country was crawling out of the Great Depression, Black Michiganders were often denied mortgages in favor of white buyers in the same tax bracket. So, Brewster Douglas would reach its maximum capacity, housing 15,000 people. Tenancy turnover was high, and as biographer Mike Rabowski put it, 
In this great bustle of nameless faces and faceless names, one's next-door neighbors could be total strangers. And such was the case for three junior high girls by the names of Florence, Mary, and Diane. Florence Ballard and Mary Wilson met one fateful day in 1959, not at Brewster Douglas, but at a local talent show. Wilson had been part of a gospel group when another member slighted her singing. Now she was self-conscious of her voice. So that night at the talent show, with her leather jacket over her shoulders and her tongue planted firmly in cheek, she lip-synced to a Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers record. Her performance won over the audience. But as Wilson left the stage and took a seat, she watched as the next girl stepped under the spotlight. She went by Flow Ballard, and she was absolutely striking. One of 14 children, she'd had a little practice learning to stand out. She wore a white gown and a take-no-prisoners expression that commanded the attention of the room before the first Ave Maria. Ballard's soulfulness was well beyond her 16 years, and by her last thunderous note, the audience was on their feet. Wilson couldn't believe her ears or her eyes. Ballard was dazzling. So after the show, she approached the songbird about forming a singing group together. And Ballard said, An all-girl singing group? Who in the world would go for that? A man by the name of Milton Jenkins had big dreams for himself. He would become a big-time music manager. Of course, to do that, one needs to source two things, cash and talent. The former he scored in less than savory ways. The latter he would cobble together in the form of an all-boys doo-wop group called The Primes. The Primes were in need of an opening act, maybe an all-girl counterpart Jenkins would call The Primettes. Jenkins had run into Florence Ballard at Brewster Douglas. Ballard already had herself the makings of a girl group in Mary Wilson. So Jenkins invited the teens to his apartment to meet the Primes. Wilson later said their parents would have killed them if they knew their daughters followed a strange man to his apartment. But when they arrived, there was another girl sitting at the table. She was... Undeniably beautiful, big eyes, wiry limbs, and a palpable shyness. In some ways, she was the opposite of Florence Ballard, but she could sing. Her name was Diane Ross. So Jenkins put the girls together. Ballard, with the strongest voice and equally strong opinions, would be the de facto leader. Wilson and Ross would provide the accompanying harmonies. Plus a fourth, Betty McLown. The Primettes would be a quartet. With their parents' permission, they made it official. 
And before they knew it, Jenkins was booking the primates at local gigs, more talent shows, clubs, and sock hops. The primates would dress in matching looks, spearheaded by Ross, voluminous wigs and waist-cinching glamour that didn't fear color in every sense of the word. Over time, their looks, like their dancing and their singing, went from clunky to captivating. They were the whole package, and Ross took it upon herself to get that package in front of a record company. They were winning talent shows, $15 split four ways, and she knew there was much more to be made. Over her years at Brewster Douglas, Ross's neighbor was a boy named William Robinson Jr. Robinson had a singing group called the Matadors. Now, William Robinson went by Smokey Robinson, and the Matadors went by the Miracles, and they were the hottest act over at brand new label Motown Records. Motown founder Barry Gordy Jr. was an aspiring songwriter who'd resigned himself to a responsible job at the Ford Motor Company. But by 1959, a restless Gordy turned 30. So, inspired by the Lincoln Mercury assembly line and powered by an $800 loan from his family, he left a life of pensioned stability and birthed what he'd eventually call Motown Records a play off Detroit's Motor City moniker. He'd buy a rundown row house and move his family into its second floor, turn the main floor into a recording studio, and plaster the words Hitsville, USA above its doors, with a plan to churn out hits like Ford churned out Country Squires. But Time writes that at that moment in time, the slogan was premature. Gordy famously said he wanted a place where a kid off the street could walk in one door an unknown and come out another a recording artist, a star. But Hitsville, USA had yet to manufacture a hit. Ross knew Smokey Robinson was both a singer and songwriter working with Gordy, and she tapped her neighbor for an audition. Robinson had heard the primates sing, and he saw potential, so he made the call. And as biographer Mike Rabowski tells the story in his meticulously researched book, The Supremes, A Saga of Motown Dreams, Success, and Betrayal, when the girls arrived at the blue and white row house, Ross became jelly-legged. Ballard marched right across the lawn and up the steps. They would perform three tunes for Gordy and his executives, their best covers. But Gordy spent most of their audition unfocused. He left the room multiple times, and from the control booth, his executives tossed around words like, so-so. Gordy was curious about Ross, saying while she sang through her nose, there was something about her. But at the end of the day, he wasn't particularly interested in signing an all-girl group, as Ballard had suspected. 
and when they hit their last nervous note, the Motown founder told them they were simply too young. Come back when you finish high school. Ross, Ballard, Wilson, and McGlowan knew that was an excuse. It was a clear rejection. With no hope of signing with Motown anytime soon, the Primats looked to other record labels, namely the brand new and local Lupine Records. There they'd record two songs, Tears of Sorrow and Pretty Baby, but both were flops. It was then that Betty McGlowan informed the girls she was leaving the group. They would replace McGlowan with another singer in their orbit named Barbara Martin, and together the four wandered gingerly back to Motown HQ. They wouldn't be so bold as to ask Gordy to reconsider, but they would hang out in reception, hoping to be called into the booth for backup vocals. More often than not, Gordy's artists, like the Miracles' Mary Wells and Marvin Gaye, needed hand-clappers. And the primates were primed and ready to clap, snap, ooh, and ah at a moment's notice. And soon, their not-so-subtle plan kind of worked. The girls didn't exactly blend into the background. Gordy noticed them day in and day out. So one day, he offered them a contract. And with the reluctant blessings of eight concerned parents... The Primates became official Motown artists. Later, those contracts would prove to be deeply exploitative. The Primates weren't the first, nor the last, to fall victim to an industry built on bad deals. In 1961, The Miracles' Shop Around, written by Smokey Robinson, would become Motown's first million-dollar hit, reaching number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and promoting Smokey Robinson to vice president of Motown Records, Inc. Meanwhile, the Primettes started recording their first songs under the Motown banner, I Want a Guy and Never Again. But before the quartet was introduced to the world, Gordy prescribed one change. Their name. The Primates didn't really do it for him. So, as Motown lore goes, he had his secretary come up with a list of five names, including the Jewelettes. Names ending with et signified to the world they were a girl group. She scribbled her ideas down, tossed them into a hat, and the group leader, Florence Ballard, was selected to select one. She pulled out a piece of paper and read aloud, The Supremes. And she liked it. Gordy liked it too. And The Supremes officially released their first Motown singles, written by Barry Gordy Jr. himself. Hitsville, USA, here they come. But reception would be far from supreme. 
I want a guy didn't move in stores. Disc jockeys wouldn't play it, and soon record stores refused to stock it. It was a launch pad explosion. So Gordy hurried another song off the assembly line, a ditty called Buttered Popcorn. But let's just say it didn't pop either. Gordy wasn't happy, even reportedly distancing himself from that record. Soon he brought in another all-girl group he'd named the Marvelettes to record their first song, Please Mr. Postman. That song would become Motown's first ever single to buoy to the top of the Billboard chart. Two years later, it would be covered by the Beatles. Meanwhile, the Supremes were floundering. Rabowski writes, That year at the Motown Christmas party, the Marvelettes got diamond rings. The Supremes got transistor radios. We'll be right back. Hey, did you know Apostrophe has a YouTube channel? You can listen to We Regret to Inform You and Under the Influence anytime. Just tap the link in this episode's description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. By 1962, The Miracles released You've Really Got a Hold on Me, which peaked at number eight on the Billboard charts. Marvin Gaye's Can I Get a Witness and Martha and the Vendellas' Heat Wave would soon follow. The Supremes would release two singles, Your Heart Belongs to Me and Let Me Go the Right Way, neither of which did well. At this point, they'd released more singles into the world than they could count on one hand. And yet, they had nothing to show for it. People around the halls of Hitsville, USA, started referring to them as the no-hit Supremes. When they toured with the other Motown acts, their name appeared only in fine print at the bottom of the flyer, eclipsed by the Vandellas. And soon, Gordy would declare the Supremes a, quote, total failure. Barbara Martin became pregnant and left the group, leaving just Ross, Ballard, and Wilson. They wouldn't replace Martin, moving forward as a trio, albeit a shaky one. Motown's M's 
were soaring. Mary Wells, Martha Reeves, the Marvelettes, the Miracles, Marvin Gaye. The Supremes were misfits in every way. Diane Ross was becoming increasingly stressed, as was Mary Wilson. Wilson later said she didn't get it. What was taking the world so long to realize how good they were? She couldn't understand why they didn't have one hit record. Gordy gave the Supremes one last shot at making waves on the charts in the form of two singles. The first, the aptly named My Heart Can't Take It No More, was a total flop, peaking at number 129. The no-hit Supremes struck again. Then they released A Breathtaking Guy. That single peaked at number 75, the highest-charting single to date for the Supremes. It was progress, and, against his better judgment, Barry Gordy decided to move forward with the Supremes' debut album. It would be called Meet the Supremes, essentially a collection of their singles to date. But the album didn't make a splash, and Gordy decided the Supremes needed a new front person. From now on, Ross would lead the group. She had a softer, more commercial voice and a softer, more commercial look. This caused tension in the group, namely between Ballard, who led with her voice, and Ross, who led with her ambition. But Gordy ruled. Soon, the Beatles would invade America. And the Primes, remember them? The male counterpart to the Primettes? They changed their name to The Temptations. And in 1964, The Temptations would release The Way You Do the Things You Do, which reached number one on the R&B charts and set the stage for mega hits like My Girl. It seemed like everyone else was hitting their stride. And that's when Gordy did a little shuffling of the Motown family. Motown had in-house composers by the names of Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Edward Holland. Known as Holland Dozier Holland, the Detroit-born trio, in part made up of two brothers, began with differing musical pursuits. Dozier and Edward Holland wanted to become singers, Brian Holland a vocalist and producer. But when the trio came together, it was songwriting magic. They penned most of the hit songs mentioned in this episode. The Marvelettes, Locking Up My Heart, Martha and the Vandellas, Heat Wave, Marvin Gaye's Can I Get a Witness, They'd Write the Four Tops, Baby I Need Your Loving, I Can't Help Myself, and Marvin Gaye's How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, to name a few. The majority of the Supreme songs had been penned by Barry Gordy or Smokey Robinson. Now, Gordy was tossing a Hail Mary, pairing his all-male composing trio with his all-female singing trio. So Holland Dozier Holland came up with a song called Run, 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 
It's a jaunty tune featuring staccato sax over the Supremes' classic oohs and ahs. Wilson said Run 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 was going to be the one, finally their breakout hit. But it wasn't. Run 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 ran only as far as number 93 on the charts. Their family started giving them not-so-gentle nudges, that maybe this whole singing thing wasn't going to work out. Maybe they ought to consider getting real jobs. It was all slipping away. But as Rabowski tells the story, one day Lamont Dozier was noodling on the piano, reflecting on a past fling. She wanted a more serious relationship. He wasn't ready to commit. And he thought, How bizarre is it that love could be so fragile? One minute you're together and the next, poof, they're gone. It's like, where did the love go? And poof, that's when Holland Dozier Holland presented the Supremes with another song. But the Supremes didn't love it. Wilson cried to Eddie Holland, saying, Please, they just needed one hit. Where did our love go? Wasn't going to be it. It was no heat wave. She said it was bland. If HDH didn't come up with another one soon, their parents were going to make them give up on music and go to college. She pleaded. Ross hated the song so much, she didn't even want to record it. But in the summer of 1964, Where Did Our Love Go was released. And something unexpected happened. Where Did Our Love Go reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Then, Holland Dozier Holland brought them another song called Baby Love, which also soared to the top of the charts. It was unbelievable. Next, they would release Come See About Me, their third number one hit in 1964. Then came Stop in the Name of Love, which also peaked at number one, followed closely by Back in My Arms Again. After years of hearing no-hit Supremes whispered up and down the halls of Motown Studios, five of the Supreme songs in a row would be number one hits. No one was whispering now. Soon, Baby Love reached the top spot in the UK, making the Supremes the first all-girl group to achieve that milestone. Their second album, which would be titled Where Did Our Love Go?, would bring about three number one hits from a singular album, a first in Billboard magazine history, and remain steady on the charts for 89 weeks. And suddenly, Where Did Our Love Go? became the highest-ranking album by an all-female group. In 1966, the Supremes released hits like You Keep Me Hanging On and You Can't Hurry Love. As their sales soared, so too did their wardrobe budget. 
and Diane Ross, Florence Ballard, and Mary Wilson would become the symbol of Motown glamour. Their smooth sound and sophisticated look crossed the racial divide, reaching black and white audiences. Motown transcended its origins as a record label, emerging a distinct musical genre of its own, and making Motown the most successful black-owned enterprise in America. By 1967, Diane Ross had changed her name to Diana, and Gordy changed the group's name again. The Supremes would henceforth be known as Diana Ross and the Supremes. And with that, a storm of tensions and resentments led to Florence Ballard's exit from the group. She'd be replaced by former Bluebell, Cindy Birdsong. By 1969, Diana Ross and the Supremes released their 12th chart topper, Someday We'll Be Together. And the girls from Brewster Douglas, initially rejected by Motown, who put out flop after flop, songs that were rejected by DJs and pulled from shelves, songs that prompted the founder of Motown to declare them a failure, and that earned them the nickname the No-Hit Supremes, would become Motown's most successful act of the 1960s, making the all-girl singing group Florence Ballard couldn't imagine finding an audience the female group with the most number one songs in history on the Billboard Hot 100. A career is an interesting puzzle. Some pieces of that puzzle fall easily into place. You have the talent, you have the drive, you may have the look, you may be in the right place at exactly the right time, but often there is still one piece of that puzzle missing. When the Supremes were trying to get a foothold in the music business, they had most of the pieces of a very promising puzzle. They had the talent, they had the drive, they had the look, they were at Motown, and they had Barry Gordy's attention but it still wasn't clicking. There was a glaring hole in their puzzle, and that hole was material. When Barry Gordy looked at the Supremes, he saw potential. Then five singles failed in a row. Gordy was losing faith in them. It had been three long years. But the Supremes kept showing up, sitting in the lobby, making themselves available for background singing or even just hand claps. See, talent is never enough. So many talented people don't make it. Talent needs persistence. Talent needs grit to gain traction. Because they kept coming back, Gordy decided to give the Supremes one last shot. He paired the female trio with a male songwriting trio, An odd choice back then, but what a magical choice. Holland Dozier Holland was that missing piece. Remember that just because one piece of the puzzle is missing doesn't mean the whole puzzle is wrong. 
the singing group that recorded flop after flop for three years but kept showing up, would go on to have 33 hits in the top 40 and an astonishing 12 number one singles. Never, ever give up. Supremes. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, 1988. Star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, 1994. Songs inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, Where Did Our Love Go? You Keep Me Hanging On, and Stop in the Name of Love. Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, 2023. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. We don't regret to inform you. Our theme music is by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Tunes provided by APM Music and were powered by ACAST. The major source for this episode is The Supremes, a saga of Motown dreams, success, and betrayal by Mark Rabowski. If you want to know more about The Supremes story, I highly recommend picking up a copy. It's dense, well-researched, and fascinating. Other sources are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. If you enjoyed this episode, you may also like rejecting Jay-Z from season one. Jay-Z was crowned the world's first hip-hop billionaire, but 25 years earlier, no one would give him a record deal. Labels said there was no market for his brand of music, and radio stations refused to play his songs. It's a remarkable story, from Marcy Projects all the way to Madison Square Garden. You can follow us on social at Apostrophe Pod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.